this morning. Uh, there are a few things that I'd like to say. First of all, uh, thank everybody who was there, um, who, were, who was with us Friday night to help out with the lock-in, all of our adults who were there. We thank you very much. Um, you know, we all know that the lock-in was open for yeah, an adult, and while all of us came to the, not the lock, the fall festival for fun and for fellowship, which we all had that, there were a lot of people who helped out Friday night, uh, uh, and I just want to thank all of you who were there for how you helped out. Brother Larry, thank you very much for providing the hay for the hay ride. Brother Ray and Sister Rebecca stayed very, very, very late with us to help out with the with the kids who were staying overnight for the lock-in. So if we could take a moment to appreciate them as well. But all of you who were there, you were a great blessing. You really, really helped us out and we're grateful for you. If I can just say this before we actually go into the book of Galatians, because I feel like it needs to be said. Um, in my place... Well, let me, how do I put this? Uh, I know that convenience is a very good thing. And sometimes you have to you have to do certain things because nobody else is doing it there in the moment. Um, but convenience shouldn't dictate the will of God for our lives. Uh, we shouldn't do certain things just because nobody else is, at least forever. And uh, every time I get behind these drums, I appreciate the compliments or the, all that, but this is that's not my place in the body of Christ. I get convicted every time I get behind these things, so I'm just going to not be, be the substitute drummer anymore. I can't do it, uh, spiritually speaking, and it's just not happening going forward. I understand that many of us, and it's a good mentality to have, well, God will send us a drummer, and He will. And, but that doesn't mean that somebody who he doesn't want to be the drummer has to drum in the meantime. Amen. So I won't be doing that anymore. Um, so obviously drumming, we know it's not a heaven or hell issue, but it's just not my place in the body of Christ. And it's in my best interest to stay away from a place that God doesn't want me. And that's the case with all of us. That's, you know, we could all relate to that in some way, shape, or form. Um, there are other things that I would like to say, but I don't want to hold you hostage today. Uh, I don't know how long I'm going to keep you here, but uh, we're going to be coming from the book of Galatians in chapter 6. We had walked over the bridge from chapter 5 to chapter 6 a couple of weeks ago, I believe, or last week perhaps. No, it was a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we're in the very last chapter of this book that we've been going through ever since... June, I believe. So, I've grown to have a much greater appreciation for this little book in the Bible, this six-chapter book, than I had before. You hear, you hear it uh, simplified all the time. Um, you can't earn your way to heaven; only Christ can bring you to heaven. And we hear that all the time. That is standard Christian doctrine. You cannot accept that. Uh, Honestly, anybody who does not accept that their works don't get them into heaven, that Jesus is their only way to heaven, that might not even be a real Christian. Um, 
Salvation is just the easiest doctrine to understand in the Bible. Amen. And many people miss it all the time. But in traveling through this book, I've gotten to know how this reality of justification by faith is not just limited to the book of Galatians. How you can take this truth all the way back throughout the Old Testament that the just do, in fact, live by faith. And that faith is more specifically realized now in the New Covenant than it ever was in the Old Testament. While in the Old Testament you would have this laundry list of sacrifices and offerings to offer up to God due to your failure to keep God's law, now God has satisfied His law and His wrath with only one sacrifice, and that's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. And that's the only sacrifice you and I can depend on. And that's all that God asks of us is faith and that one sacrifice. Because the blood of bulls and goats just ain't going to cut it. But the blood of Jesus Christ does everything I need it to do. Yeah. And towards the end of this book, Paul is getting into the more practical side of Christianity. At this point in the last chapter, Paul is full-blown going on with the message that you need to live out your salvation. You need to live out your Christianity. And in chapter 6, verses 3, three through 5 is what I'm going to be reading today. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Amen. Y'all can be seated. There's a danger to giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ than absolutely nothing else with your life. When you got saved, you got saved. And there's no doubt about that. However, Paul is challenging every Christian with the end, actually, and it's a common thing that you see in most of his epistles, that this great salvation that we have in Christ has got to be actually lived out. There's fruit for this salvation. There's evidence for this salvation. Not a single one of us in the church are God himself. So all we have to know, based off of what, all we have to know whether or not somebody is a Christian, whether they are not a Christian, is how they live their life. You read in the Old Testament the story of Israel's first king, King Saul, a man who would show up to the sacrifice and worship the Lord with all of God's people, and then he would just continually rebel and disobey God. And it would tragically result in a, him being in a battle that he could not win, and therefore accepting his defeat, unfortunately took his own life with his own sword. You can. You can come to church every Sunday. You can lift your hands and you can sing along. And that is meaningful. We are to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. It is biblical. It is the ideal Christian thing to do. There's nothing wrong with the lifting of hands there's nothing wrong with singing the songs, but these are things that atheists can do. These are things that the secular world can do. Anybody can lift up their hands and sing a little hymn. That great, I've heard someone call it the national anthem of Christianity, Amazing Grace. Um, it's so iconic. You hear that song being sung in many places that are not churches. It's just so iconic. And the story behind it, it's just it's wonderful. A lot of people in a lot of different groups for different reasons sing Amazing Grace. 
It's just a cultural song. The difference between the world and the church is that the true Christian understands Amazing Grace better than anybody else. We know what that song is talking about personally because we've lived through that amazing grace and we're still walking in that amazing grace today. We know what John Newton said when he sang amazing grace for the first time because we have walked in that exact same grace that he, that he walked in. We know amazing grace, but anybody... Anybody can come to church, anybody can do the religious stuff, anybody can do stuff, anybody can take part in communion, anybody can go up to a a baptistry or a trough like we have and be water baptized, anybody can read the Bible, a lot of theological classes, and it's not just, uh, I I don't know how exactly you would describe it. But a lot of theological classes and secular colleges and universities are not too Christ-minded, but they're looked at through more of a secular view. The study of theology today is seen more through the lens of, here's what they believe, here's what all these religions believe, and not really much, here's what you need to believe, or you won't be in right relationship with God. People have such a secular view of church things today People have a very secular view of the song Amazing Grace, and it's not that they want to pervert the song, it's just that these things are seen today as more of staples of society, cultural big things. It's not really something that you can, that you're asked to totally understand. You're not asked to worship God anymore in this world. You're asked to sing this song, and if you don't know this song, where have you been? It's one of the most famous songs ever written. There is a deeper purpose to your walk with God than that. There's a deeper purpose than head knowledge than to know that John Newton, a former slave owner, got saved one day and would write the song Amazing Grace and that God would deliver him from that practice. There's more to it than that. John Newton's testimony is fantastic. Nobody disagrees with that. Everybody knows that John Newton's testimony is a true testimony of the grace of God and where God can deliver you from. But there's more to my life than looking at another man's testimony and thinking that his testimony is good enough for my Christianity. There's more to my life than appreciating the testimony of the Apostle Paul, a man who straight up killed Christians before he became one. There's more to it because my appreciation for their lives are not going to grant me access into heaven. It's never going to happen. But nobody really knows. I can't really look at uh, Cindy or Sister Sue. I can't look into their spirit. I can't look at their soul and figure out if they're truly a Christian or not. I can't look at Brother John Ford or my dad and just look at them, look at their souls, whatever a soul even looks like, and say, oh, yeah, they're definitely Christians. Only God can do that. And it is true that you can't judge anybody based off of whatever. You can't condemn somebody to hell. You can't You can't do that. You can't make that kind of judgment against somebody because you don't have the authority to condemn somebody to hell. Only God does. However, that doesn't change the fact that we have evidence to lean on to tell whether or not somebody is a true Christian or not. The world will probably call it judgmental, they'll call it hateful, but the fact of the matter is, if you are a Christian, you just might actually act like a Christian. I mean, 
If you're a fish, you just might actually swim. If you're a bird, you might just actually fly one day. If you're a Christian, you just might live like a Christian. Because this is all evidence of who you are in Christ. Paul would say in these three verses that we read, For if a man, let's stop right there in verse 3. For if a man, that word man, we all know that that's a general term, that it means men and women, it means all of humanity, any man. Paul's not just talking to one gender, he's talking to both, he's talking to everybody. For if any human being, if any person, for if a man, Paul writing to the Galatians, this term specifically is directed toward the church. Paul isn't talking to everybody who lives in Galatia, wherever that would have been. Paul isn't talking to just everybody in the Roman Empire. Paul is talking specifically to a group of Christians in this. So his audience is straight to the church. This isn't some evangelistic cry to get saved. He's talking to people who, despite their shortcomings, as we've seen in this book, are still saved, whoever they might be. Paul is writing specifically to the church. He said, for if a man think himself, this is a self-perception, what you and I think of ourselves, not what we hear other people say about us, not the analysis that people give to us about us. This is what we think of ourselves. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing. In reality, this person in question, whoever Paul is talking about, thinks that they are much greater, more beneficial to the church than they are. They see themselves as God's appointed man for God's appointed hour. They are the solution for the problem. They are the best preacher, the best prayer warrior, the best tither, the best volunteer, the best praiser, the best worshiper. They are truly one of, if not simply, the greatest Christian. All the while, Paul says they're nothing. They are a weak unanointed minister who might not even be called of God in that position to begin with. They just might be in the ministry for the sake of popularity. Their prayer life is weak. They never pray for others, only themselves. They never pray for God to be glorified unless they too can receive glory or recognition from a circumstance. Now this person just might actually be the best tither. But as has been the case with the ministry and prayer, they don't tithe just to support the local church to the glory of God. This kind of person that Paul talks about tithes so others can know. So everyone else can know that they tithe. They just might tithe better than anyone else for the sake of their own recognition. So others can know who's just the best. Maybe they could try to influence the leadership on what to preach should they find a point of disagreement. They never volunteer, not because of inconvenient job hours, but because they are simply too sanctified to indulge in the more practical helping in the church. And since they are the star of their story and the core of their world, their praise is absolutely weak. They don't understand why God is worthy, and they're not praising God for God. They have truly convinced themselves to be something, when in reality, 
They are absolutely nothing, is what Paul says. These are very harsh words. And listen, Paul is obviously not writing this just to offend the Galatians. You can tell early on in this book that Paul is deeply concerned for people that he personally introduced the gospel to. Paul is concerned, and he wants them to get the point. He's not writing this just to sound all big and bad. He doesn't want to just offend everybody because the gospel offends, so can I. Too many people think like that. The gospel will naturally offend on its own. Therefore, just let me be offensive for a minute. Uh Uh-uh. That's not what a Christian does. Paul is deeply concerned about the state of their souls. And he uses this strong language to get their attention. You've convinced yourself that you're all of that. You're none of that in reality. All of this is rooted back in the cause. The whole problem with the Galatians is that they're depending on something that isn't Christ and Him crucified for their Christian living. They're depending on the works. They're depending on the law. They're depending on everything that they can grab a hold of that is not the true grace of God found in Christ. And the fruit, the evidence of that is that they are being very weak Christians. Paul would entertain the possibility that some of them have straight up fallen from grace, that some of them have lost their salvation. They're so deep into this false doctrine that not only is there fruit of the flesh to show for it, but some of you have just gone straight out of God's lens of grace. You've left that grace in Christ because you've totally trusted in the law for something that only Christ can give you. You betrayed the grace of God, and there's more than enough evidence to show for it, making yourself out to be something when you are nothing. So what do we think about that? Well, first of all, the cross humbles the proud. The cross of Jesus Christ humbles the proud. Because the cross, specifically Jesus on the cross, tells me that there is absolutely nothing that I could have ever done to earn my way into heaven. There was absolutely nothing that I could have ever done to become a better Christian. The cross of Jesus Christ looks at the one who looks at it and puts you and I both in such a helpless situation, such a weak situation. It's a better word that it doesn't even put us in a weak situation, but rather the cross exposes just how weak and defenseless against hell itself we are. We need somebody defending us from this world, from the lusts of our own flesh, from the devil himself. And the only one who can do that is God himself. And if I don't embrace God's redemption plan found at Calvary, I won't have any of that protection. I won't have that great hedge of protection that people always preach about. That hedge that is biblical, that protection that is biblical. But if I step outside of this line of faith, I don't have that hedge. And I don't have access to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit if I step outside of that hedge, that hedge being the cross. I don't have any of that. The cross puts me in a position to where I realize that I need God to move on my behalf. I'm desperate for God to do something for me because there's nothing I can do. The cross shows me that if I really got into a ring with the devil himself, that he would eat me alive The cross shows me that God has to fight my battles. The cross shows me that God has to take down my enemies. The cross shows me that the Lord himself is my only solution to get through this life alive, spiritually speaking. The cross shows me that Jesus did because I can't. I can't. The cross humbles the proud. 
This kind of person Paul speaks of has become so egotistical that they have indeed deceived themselves. They've become so proud of who they are, what they have, that they have convinced themselves that they are something that really only the Lord can be through you and in you. They have made themselves out to be so consecrated unto the Lord and beneficial to the body of Christ, whereas their pride has actually made them into somebody who is totally, yet perfectly, religious and useless. This is like if a diver went into a swimming pool and thinking that they could breathe underwater underwater for all night, they grab the tarp or the covering and they just, from the pool, drag the tarp from one end to the other, sealing themselves in the pool, thinking that they can somehow survive all night, breathe underwater, uh, breathe underwater all night. And wouldn't you have guessed this, this exact person does not have the ability to breathe underwater all night and they drown and die in that pool making themselves out to be something that they're not, making themselves out to be something when they are nothing. I can climb a mountain. Maybe you can't physically, but when it's talking about the mountain of, let's say, my own sin, I cannot climb that mountain. The Bible teaches that I'm under the dominion of my sin without Christ. Sin runs my life without Jesus Christ. Sin rules me like a king rules his peasants. Sin is in charge, and I have no hope of climbing that mountain if God doesn't step in to do something for me. But many deceive themselves. Many think that they could really breathe underwater all night without dying. Many people really think that they can get through this life, and God is just going to have to be satisfied with the few good things that they actually did and make it into eternity. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You and I need an intercessor between us and the Father. And good news, that intercessor is Jesus Christ. They think that they are something, but they are really nothing. They have deceived themselves. So we now know how not to conduct yourself in regards to how you view yourself. But what do we do exactly? Because there's a whole lot of don't do this. Well, what do we do instead if we know what not to do, what do, what do we do? What do we do? Paul challenges that in the beginning of verse 4. He says, let every man, every man, everybody. He's not talking to one specific group within the church. He's talking to everybody in the church. Whether you fall in line with the sub-bullet standard that Paul just gave us or not, If you're not prideful and self-deceived, keep on walking that path. If you are prideful and self-deceived, Paul encourages the church to change the path that they're on. There's only one path to be on, and that's a path of humble faith in Christ. If you're on that path, stay on that path. If you're off that path, get on that path. But be on that path. Be on that path of humility. Humble yourself. Humble humble yourself in the presence of God. He says, let every man prove. Prove. Don't just say that you are such a great Christian. Don't just say that you're humble. Don't just say that you are beneficial to the kingdom of God. Don't say, don't just live by who you are based off of what you say. 
Because what you say is not enough. Paul says, show the evidence for your salvation. Don't just be a verbal Christian, be an active Christian. Amen. James would write in James 1, 22 through 25, but you be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholds himself and goes his way, and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues therein, be being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. He says the law of liberty. That law of liberty is the law of the Spirit. The law of the new covenant, the law of Christ. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death refers to the law of the old covenant. The law that Paul would say himself was added because of transgressions. The law was never added to save anybody, but the law was added to highlight how mankind had fallen so short of God's glory. The law was put there to expose that man was that man was practicing idolatry, that man was adulterous, that man was murdering. And not just what they were doing, but the fact that these things are sinful in the eyes of God. The law was put there to expose everybody. The law was put to expose John Washington for the sinner that he is outside of the grace of God. The law was put there for transgressions, and the penalty of this law, should you abide by it, is death. The law demanded death, not just any death, not, like, not just the death penalty that we have here in this country, but an eternal death. If you die in the sin that the law exposes, your penalty is eternal death paying an eternal wage that you'll never be able to pay off. But the law of the spirit of life, that's the new covenant law, the law of Christ. The law of the spirit of life is put here because of all that we have access to. Jesus came down to this earth. He satisfied the righteous demands of the law. Everything that the law of God ever asks you and I to do, Jesus satisfied all of those righteous demands. Jesus is the perfect man. He lived that perfect life. He never stumbled at one point. He was even tempted beyond measure and never succumbed to any of that temptation. Jesus Christ is the perfect man. He is the perfect man. He satisfied the righteous demands of the law. And then at the end of his life, he was led up to Golgotha's hill to the cross of Calvary to satisfy the wrath of God that waits for all of those who die in the sin that the law, that the law exposes. He died satisfying that wrath. All the wrath came down on him, as Isaiah would prophesy, so that we would never have to experience that judgment. He was our substitute. Yes, amen. So that in his place we could be clothed with his righteousness. So that we could be made holy just as our Father in heaven is holy. So that's what Jesus said. And in and of ourselves... Just depending on the law, these things are impossible, but in Christ, all things are possible. 
all things are possible. That doesn't mean that all things are condoned. It means that all things are possible. Paul writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me from a prison cell. If that verse really turns you into a superhero, don't you think that Paul would have used that false idea of super strength to break out of prison? But no, he was content because God is just as able to work on a man in jail as he is in church. God is capable to give you a contentment in Christ anywhere. You can walk in that victory anywhere. Paul was put in jail because he offended some people for preaching the gospel. The world that you and I live in, needless to say, does not know the peace of God that we know. They don't have the contentment in Christ that we know. But a child of God has access to all of that peace, all of that provision. The law of the spirit of life, the law of liberty, and continuing in that law and that law alone, that law that teaches us to depend on Jesus, to depend on what he's done for us. Jesus dies, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in our lives, and now you and I can successfully live out this Christian life. I don't have to just say that I'm a Christian, I can actually be a Christian. All of these good works can be fulfilled without even me having to agonizingly try so hard to do them simply because the Holy Spirit is actually changing who I am. The Holy Spirit is renewing my mind. Whereas before I would want to chase after the things of the world, now I want to chase after the things of God because there is a great change in me. There's a great change in all of us who have accepted Christ. And the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus says that it is possible to do everything that you need to do to live a godly life. None of it earns you brownie points, but you can live that victorious life. You can have victory over that sin that once reigned over you like a cruel king. You can have victory over that because Christ has conquered that victory. And you can be more than a conqueror. I can prove the work. But not just any work. Paul says in verse 4 to prove his own work. To prove his work. The individual Christian. Each and every single one of us. And that challenges the believer to live up to the call of God. It challenges each of us to actually live out our salvation. It challenges each of us. It it says, for one thing, that we're not able to live somebody else's Christianity. They're not able to live our Christianity. But we have to prove our work. Let every man prove his own work. Not a group of people's work, not not your best friend's work, your work, your lifestyle, your Christianity, what God, the life that God has given you, you prove that work for yourself. You do that. And in the new covenant, I can, so ideally I will. I can prove that work by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. By faith in Jesus Christ, I can prove that work. So naturally, I ought to come to the conclusion that I will. Since I can, I will. This isn't some name it and claim it thing. This is simply realizing what you already have in Christ. You're not confessing some stronger walk with God onto yourself. You are simply walking in this great benefit that God has already given you the moment you got saved. 
You're walking in that victory that God has already given you access to. Nobody had to confess anything, and nobody has to confess anything into existence. Everything that you need as a child of God, you can have that based off of your faith in Jesus and what he's done. Because that's the faith that the Holy Spirit honors. That's the door that the Spirit of God comes through to operate in your life. And you can have access to all of that victory that Jesus has won for you. You can have access to that. It challenges the believer to live up to the call of God. Now, look, a lot of people stress about what God has called us to do. Has God called me into ministry? Has God da 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 Let me say this. There are two things that we know for sure that is the will of God for our lives. First of all, the Bible is very clear that it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. Paul would then tell the church at Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, that this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. So salvation and sanctification. Anybody can answer to that first one, but only a Christian can say that they're being sanctified because we've already been saved. Only a Christian can say, yes, God is changing me. God is moving in my life personally. God is making me more to be like him, to think like him, to see the world the way that he sees it both in the love and in the justness of it all. I can I am. I can see that evidence. And if you can't answer both of those questions, have you been saved? And if you've been saved, are you for sure being sanctified? Are you submitting yourself to the sanctification process? Are you giving truly your whole life to the Lord God? Then don't lose sleep about whether or not God wants you to go on some mission trip to Zimbabwe this next summer, if you don't even know if you're allowing God to change your own life, those are the two biggest will of wills of God for your life, your salvation, and specifically to the Christian, your sanctification, the actual changing process, that's God's will for your life, and what Paul is saying that it is that it is possible to walk in that will, it is possible to walk a godly life. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be perfect here on earth, but it does mean that I can be godly by the power of God living in my life. I can walk in power over sin, so I will. I can walk in the anointing, so I will. I can live, a, I can live with a repentant heart, so I will. The Spirit has made it possible for me to live for God, so by the grace of God afforded to me at Calvary, I certainly will walk in that grace. I didn't have to confess any of it into existence because it was already there to begin with. And then, Paul would say, and then, when all is said and done, when I have officially denied myself, and taking up my cross, aiming to do this daily, as Jesus would say in Matthew and in Luke. When I have surrendered my pride to the Lord in exchange for Christ's like humility. When I have chosen to live out the Christian life instead of just talking about it. Paul would say, shall he have rejoicing in himself alone. There is no greater sense of fulfillment the knowing that by grace through faith you have successfully accomplished that law of liberty. Because it isn't self-fulfillment. It's God's fulfillment that you submitted to. And there is no greater sense of fulfillment than knowing that God has done in your life everything that he ever wanted to do. 
There's not a greater sense of fulfillment than that. Rejoicing in himself and not in another. This fulfillment is for each Christian individually. I don't get my fulfillment in accomplishing Christ's law from others. Others don't get their fulfillment in accomplishing Christ's law from me. This brings a question for you and I alone. It actually brings a few questions now that I think about it. Can we humble ourselves? Can we accept the fact that that fulfillment of accomplishing Christ's law is for us? Can we accept the fact that I cannot accomplish this law in and of myself, but that I have to be totally dependent, just as an infant child is dependent on their parent or whoever is bringing them up to do everything that they need for them? Can I accept all of these things? Can I accept the fact that the power of God isn't found in my confession principle, but rather found in himself totally? Can I accept that? And can I, when all is said and done, actually walk in this law of liberty, of freedom, that James talks about? Can I walk in that law of the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus? Can I walk in Christ's law? Can I accept that? Paul says in verse 5, For every man shall bear his own burden. These are times when we are alone. What he's talking about. Every man shall bear his own burden. You all know about the book of Job. It's one of the the most interesting books in the Bible. A man is going through an intense season of suffering. God straight up allows Satan to... No, it's not a punishment because Job did nothing wrong. God allows the devil to take so much from a seemingly innocent man in such a short amount of time. Now, as the reader, you know exactly why God allows allows this to happen. But Job goes through a season of suffering. He mourns, he grieves, his friends are absolutely terrible, his wife is being just absolutely terrible. Everybody is either blaming him for committing some sin that he never committed to deserve anything... And his wife tells him at one point to curse God and die if God is going to be like this to you. And yet throughout all of the trial, all of the tribulation, Job keeps his faith in the Lord anyways. Because Job knows in whom he has believed. And in the very first chapter of Job, we see that mentality on full display in verses 20 and 21. After hearing all of the bad news that his sons and his daughters are dead, that a lot of that basically all of his business is gone, after hearing basically that his whole life has been taken away from him in the blink of an eye, it says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head. These are signs of mourning from back in the day, grieving. And it says he fell down upon the ground. And worshipped and said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job knows exactly in whom he has believed, even despite all of the persecution. You've got to keep in mind the persecution that Job went through. 
wasn't from some church-hating government or whatever. It was from the devil himself. If anybody knows how to persecute God's people, it is Satan. And yet Job remains faithful to the Lord in the midst of all of it. Even when he doesn't understand what's going on, he remains faithful. And that faith would prove effectual in Job's life. Now we're talking about a man here who was living during the Old Testament era. Not everybody could say the Holy Spirit is working in my life because the ultimate sin problem of the world had not yet been taken away, which it would be by Jesus Christ. Job can't say that the Spirit of God is moving in my life, that the Spirit of God dwells inside of me. Job doesn't have that personal link that you and I have access to with God today in this new and in this everlasting covenant. And yet he remains faithful to God from the beginning all the way up until the end. Even if God has to rebuke him, he remains faithful to the Lord. I put out a post on social media like last week or something talking about why it's important to keep our faith even when the church itself fails us. One of the worst things that you could do is forsake your faith in God because of something that the church did. Too many people forget that your brothers and your sisters in Christ, all of us are in this sanctification process together. That does not guarantee that we're going to be there for you every time you need us, brother. Brother Ray, you mentioned that uh, that we'll be with one another whenever we need each other. And I agree with you, brother. This is a very close-knit church family. Not every church can say that, though. Most churches I've ever been to cannot say that. Most of them can't. Most churches cannot say that their brothers and their sisters will always be there for them. Most churches can't say that the church will have my back whenever I'm going through a tough season. I mean, I see here, we, we support people who don't even go to church here. I remember when uh, Sister Tabitha was going through that difficult season recently. I don't know if, if she's still going through all that, but we, like, we, we, we supported her. We provided for her. And thank God for churches like this. But that doesn't guarantee that you're always going to have this aid from the church. Whether it's because the church is just incapable in that season or whether it's for a worse reason, people just don't help you out of spite. Whenever you go through a difficult time and you have only two options, to trust in the Lord or not to trust in the Lord, and you have to make that decision there, right there in that season, do I trust God today? Do I depend on Him today? Whenever you do go through a season of suffering, do you keep trusting in God? Do you continue submitting to that sanctification process even whenever you're going through a trial? Even whenever you're going through what some people could describe as hell itself, David would say, if I make my bed in hell, God, you are still with me. Many people understand that faith is rewarding Not because I can create something with my faith, but because I have access to the Creator through faith. I have access to the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that access, I can live out everything that God has given me. I can actually experience victory over sin. I can experience the anointing, the application of the Holy Spirit in my life. Not just to preach, but to actually live for God day by day. To witness to other people. I have access to all of it. And because I have access to all of it, why not prove the work? Why not live up to the call that God has brought me into? 
Why not actually be that great part of the church instead of just believing that I am a good part of the church? Why not actually be that great worshiper who worships from the heart, not just from lifting my hands? Why not actually depend on the Holy Spirit to minister, not just when it's pulpit preaching, but whenever it is witnessing to somebody at Walmart? Why not tithe, not for the sake of gloating, but for the sake of simply supporting God's work, supporting God's church to the glory of God? I mean, people are more quick to say to about a homeless person these days, well, whatever they do with their money is between them and the Lord. But for some reason, when it comes to tithing, we automatically think that everybody's doing the most corrupt thing, and then we don't do it. I'm not saying that churches don't do corrupt things with their tithe. There are a lot of them out there, they definitely do. But I just think that that logic that we run with is a little silly sometimes. But there's more to it than tithing. We know. There's more to it than just lifting my hands. And there is more to it than preaching. There's more to the Word of God than just reading it. There's more to the Word of God than just hearing it. But the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, says, do this. And that's a command. It's not a recommendation. It's not a question. God says, do this word. Prove this work. God isn't trying to kill you or challenge you to drive off a cliff by saying, do the Bible. He tells the Christian to do these things because we can. Not to, not to earn salvation or to earn sanctification, but simply because we can. Because he's given us the ability. He's given us everything that we need to get through this life victoriously. One of those minor prophets in the Old Testament talk about how they observed the poor animal that I believe was mauled by a predator. And it was just left with two legs and a piece of an ear. When you first read that, you ask yourself, why would that ever be in the, why is that in the Bible? Because at first it seems to be just kind of a useless observation. But that's how many Christians make it through this life. They make it through barely. They barely make it through. They make it through, not with the full body, but just with two legs and a piece of an ear because they've allowed the devil, the world, the desires of their own sinful flesh to tear them apart. And yes, they leave this world saved, but they leave beaten down by everything that you could ever imagine. God says in just telling us to do this work for him that we don't have to leave, that we don't have to live on this earth with just two legs and a piece of an ear. But because we have full access to everything that we ever need to make it through, we can make it through this life victoriously. It doesn't mean that persecution is never going to come. We know that persecution is coming. Uh, We know that persecution is already here all over the world. That doesn't mean that we have to be eaten alive by the persecution. When Paul and Silas were in jail, they sang praises to God because they know in whom they have believed. Do you know in whom you have believed today? And are you walking in that lifestyle that he's afforded for you? Are you walking totally in the victory of the Son of God at the cross? Or are you walking with just two legs and a piece of veneer left with you? If you are today, let me tell you, God can restore your body. And he can restore your mind. He can restore your emotions. He can restore it all. Because you don't need, you don't have to walk with just two legs and a piece of veneer. You can walk in the victory that God has provided for you. Amen. 
else to say this morning. Prove the work. That's the challenge of the Holy Spirit at the end of a lot of these epistles. After exposing us to this great victorious life we have by faith, by grace through faith, the Holy Spirit often challenges the reader to live out that victory. That's a common theme in the Bible. Live out the victory that you have. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to close with a word of prayer, and if anybody would like us to pray for them, uh, the Bible says to pray for one another. I'd like to open up this up for a few minutes for a time of prayer. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day you've given us, God. We're looking forward to this next week, some of us at least, for Thanksgiving. We're looking forward to all that you have for us. God, I thank you for the empowerment that your word has by the grace, by your grace, by the power of your spirit. That power, that ability, that grace, that mercy that we have unlimited access to. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God. We thank you that although we have fallen short of your glory more times than we would care to count, you were always merciful to pick us back up and restore all that we had lost. We thank you, God, that we don't have to get through this life with just two legs and a piece of an ear, but we can walk fully in the victory that Christ has provided for us, and we thank you for that. We ask that you anoint us throughout this week. Be with us. Protect us, God. Give us opportunities to share our faith with others who may not know you, to encourage our brothers and our sisters who already are in relationship with you, Lord, so that we can be productive, useful members of your great body. And, Lord, we just once again thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Would anybody like us to pray?